This is a CBC podcast. These measures are not something that we want to do. They are a plan to counteract the absurd, illogical, unscientific, and unconstitutional interference in Alberta's electrical grid by a federal government that simply doesn't care what happens to our province so long as they have a good virtue signaling story to tell their leftist friends and special interests. Oof, pretty tough language from Alberta Premier Danielle Smith this week when she invoked the Sovereignty Act, a first ever move that basically says we reject the federal rules. But then two days later, Smith is at an announcement with several federal cabinet ministers and the cameras and some of the journalists watching catch something surprising. They were hugs. There were hugs hugs there. Okay, I missed the hugs. (laughs) Yes, there were hugs. So clearly, you know, both levels of government can work together. So what's going on? I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, we'll talk to one of the huggers. The only federal cabinet minister from Alberta joins us in a moment. We'll discuss whether this country really can get along. We'll break down the politics at play with two political watchers, and we'll talk to a former advisor to Stephen Harper about his change of heart about the toxic drug crisis. First, though, Alberta fires up the Sovereignty Act. The House is now in session. We refuse to meekly accept actions which are so plainly destructive to Alberta's economy and to the very safety and security of Alberta citizens. We will do whatever we must to stand up and protect the people of this province. There's no basis for any of the claims that Premier Smith has made about uh, the impact it would have on rates in Alberta, the impact it would have on reliability. Absolutely no, nothing she said has been supported by any evidence, any shred of, uh, of evidence. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith explaining why she's invoking the Sovereignty Act and Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo saying he doesn't buy it. Smith deployed the act on Monday. According to her, it allows Alberta to ignore federal rules when they interfere with what is rightfully Alberta's business. In this case, she doesn't want to follow the federal government's plan to green the electricity grid. The federal government wants all provinces to have a carbon-neutral power system by 2035. Smith says that will be destructive for the province, resulting in power failures and needless suffering. So she's just not going to do it. Randy Boissonneau holds an interesting position in this political wrestling match. He is the only federal cabinet minister from Alberta, minister of employment, workforce development and official languages. He joins me from our Edmonton studio. Welcome to the House. Thanks very much, Catherine. So you spent a lot of this week, Minister, dismissing this move by Danielle Smith. You say she's picking a fight. But what is the federal government actually going to do about it? Well, Catherine, I think the Sovereignty Act itself is a distraction from the real uh, issues facing Albertans. And what we're going to do is what we've always done, which is continue to find common ground. I think if you go back to the first two weeks that I was a minister back in 2021, we announced over $3 billion for childcare uh, with the province, with, with then-Premier Kenny. We've got a $25 billion health deal that's uh, about to be signed between the province of Alberta and our government with my colleague, Minister Holland. And we, in two budgets now, have indicated very clearly uh, our intent with cap- with carbon capture use and storage, billions of dollars on the table for that, 
also billions of dollars on the table for clean electricity. So, Catherine, our, my goal, and it's been my goal since I was an MP and, and since the minister, is to find common ground with the province. And there was lots of coverage this week about the new Dow facility out in Fort Saskatchewan. It's it's going to be um, $9 billion from Dow and another $2.7 billion from their partners. So, so Minister, though, you've just given us a, a bunch of examples of where you're finding ways to uh, invest in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Folks at home might say, okay, she says she's going to thumb her nose at the rules that you're putting forward. And your answer is, we're just going to, what, ignore it? Well, we're not going to ignore the Sovereignty Act, but if you actually read the Act, it's it's a toothless tiger. Some might call it a, a dubious piece of legislation. I think it's a big distraction, Catherine. Like, the Premier put a six-month pause on renewables. It has scared $12 billion of investment away from the province. That could that number could go as high as $30 billion. And look, what I like about the House is we're able to talk about politics in full sentences. And there was a, a big fight in the Alberta cabinet uh, last week, and I think that invoking the Sovereignty Act was the price that the Premier had to pay to be able to go to COP. If you take a look at what's happened politically here in the province, every single seat on the UCP board is now controlled by the Take Back Alberta movement. And so what the Premier throws onto the floor of the House and uh, what she does to actually continue growing the province sometimes seem to be two different things. At the Dow press conference, Catherine, this week when pushed on the Sovereignty Act, what she said was, I'm not going to prejudge the work that's taken place at the federal provincial working table, we're going to see how the conversations on electricity regulations continue. So if that's the case, why invoke the Sovereignty Act? And so, so we're going to continue to find question, common ground. Minister, uh, she, I mean, she has answered the question of why she is doing it, right? She says, I'm trying to send a signal to markets, to, to natural gas providers who might want to provide power to our province. Listen, we're going ahead with this. We want this. She also says we're sending a signal to the courts that if this ever does come before the courts, if your government, she says, decides to to challenge this, th- that they've made it clear that they're just not going to accept the federal regulations on all of this. So she does she does have an intent. What, what are you going to do if Alberta does indeed get in this position where it's starting to build up its natural gas um, abilities with an eye to not meeting this target? you folks are setting for 2035. So it's the Sovereignty Act that's put in place right now for regulations that would kick in 12 years from now. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of time for us to actually sort this out. And look, uh, there are lots of carve-outs, if you can use that phrase right now, like uh, the uh, natural gas um, electricity grid that we have here in the province is actually factored into our entire carbon framework for the country way past 2035. And if we want to talk about what it is that our federal government has done with and for Albertans, Catherine, we bought a pipeline and TMX is going to be ready next year. It's going to be triple the amount of uh, bitumen sent to the coast for international markets, that's going to really benefit Alberta. So I guess my message here is we're going to continue to find common ground. And I guess the question that I have at a, at a federalism level is we have a lot of ambition as a country. We're now third in the world for foreign direct investment, first in per capita foreign direct investment. Why does that matter? Thousands and thousands of good paying middle class jobs. So we have a lot of ambition as a country. And yet we've got, you know, provincial premiers that are kind of stuck in the past and don't want to see us build, don't want to see us grow, whether it's Blaine Higgs in Atlantic Canada, whether it's Scott Moe uh, here in the West or Danielle Smith here in Alberta, like there are great things that we can do with this country if we had provincial partners wanting to work with us. So so listen, uh, first of all, I'm taking note of the fact that you're saying premiers don't want to see 
the country grow, which I'm sure they would contest. But I do want to ask you about the big picture in this country. So you got sure. Daniel Smith invoking the Sovereignty Act. Saskatchewan invokes its version of its Sovereignty Act the next day. And then Scott Moe leans in further on his plan not to collect the carbon tax on home heating. He says, you know what, we're going to apply it to electricity too. How challenging is this moment for federalism, for Canada right now? Well, I think it's a it's always a challenge, and I think we've seen these kind of jurisdictional issues in the past. I'm now old enough, or maybe seasoned enough, that I remember Peter Lougheed, you know, taking shots at and disagreeing with Prime Minister Trudeau at the time. So it's one of the oldest plays in the playbook. But here's where here's where I think it gets challenging, Catherine, is when you've got provincial premiers uh, going after or bullying minorities instead of working with us through policy issues. Bullying and, minorities. Yeah, like why go after trans kids? What's that all about? Why are we doing that? in different provinces, uh, picking fights with the labor movement, like we saw Doug Ford do. Like, this is not a way to build a country. And we have great ambition as a federal government. We want to get things done. We want to, I think 21st century can really be Canada's but century. I, I need you to help me understand here, Minister. I kind of want to back up the truck because I'm sure. asking you, you've got provincial governments that are saying, we will not be subject to these regulations, laws that you are passing. We do not recognize them. We think it's overreach. And then you're talking to me about trans kids, which I, by no means am I diminishing the issue, but I'm just trying to understand, isn't there a fundamental problem in the functioning of the country when you have multiple premiers who say, we are not going to listen to your laws? Well, look, it's a country of the rule of law. And if a particular provincial government doesn't want to respect the law, then we have courts to iron that out. And that's where that's where this will ultimately end if, uh, in the case of Saskatchewan, they decide not to, you know, submit the receipts to, to the federal government. But I think if we take a look in the Alberta context, like, these are distractions from what I hear on the doors. And I'm out almost every week saying hi to people in Edmonton Centre. They want us to continue to build more housing. They want to make sure that the middle class can, you know, afford their bills every week. They want to make sure that we're delivering on health care. They want to make sure that our, our streets are, are safe and that people and, are able to grow our communities. And yet think, it, it was your government in 2015, Minister Boissonneau, uh, who said, you know, we are going to restore the federal provincial territorial relationship. I remember Justin Trudeau, you know, he made himself intergovernmental affairs minister. There was that first big meeting, lots of hugs with all the premiers. How have things deteriorated so badly? Look, I think there are issues um, here and there. I don't think that uh, we are in a in a crisis mode at all. I think we've got policy differences with the provinces. I mean, if things were not going well, Catherine, we wouldn't have signed a $200 billion healthcare deal. We would not have, if you go across the country, LNG Canada being built, the Dow announcement that I mentioned earlier. We've got the first net zero cement plant being built in the world right here in Edmonton. We've got Bécancourt with Northvolt. I mean, St. Thomas, Ontario is going to transform when that Volkswagen plant is built. We've got similar investments in Atlantic Canada. So I think we've got conservative premiers trying to pick consistent fights with the province to distract from some of their own challenges in their own backyards, when in fact, we actually have great opportunity and possibility for the 21st century to be Canada's century. Why do I say that? Because we have what the world needs. But Minister, the question was about restoring relationships. So you're saying conservative premiers? You're saying it's, it's just politics? You can't restore relationships when most of the premiers are conservatives? Uh, no, I get along really well with uh, a lot of the, a lot most of the premiers, all the premiers in fact, but 
But even in the case of Alberta, like I've got probably phone numbers of at least half the cabinet in my own phone. And uh, at the Dow announcement, I think it was two, maybe three hugs from the premier. I did see what- that <laughs> after the sovereignty act, a, a remarkable moment. Listen, we are, we are right out of time, Minister Boisson, and we'll end on a hug <laughs> between Thanks, you and Premier Smith then. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Take All the care. best. Bye. Bye. Randy Boissonneau is the federal cabinet minister from Alberta. Well, to find out what is behind the use of the Sovereignty Act and what it means for whether Canada even works, I'm joined by a pair of bureau chiefs, Tonda McCharles of the Toronto Star and Stuart Thompson, the new Ottawa bureau chief of the National Post. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Hello. Congratulations, Congratulations, Stuart. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, And as a way of congratulating you, we're going to start with you, Stuart. Uh, We just heard Randy Boissonneau call the Sovereignty Act a toothless tiger, a big distraction. What do you think that Danielle Smith hoped to achieve by invoking the Sovereignty Act this week? Yeah, I think the most important thing to remember here is that we are talking about draft regulations and we're talking about... The federal regulations are draft. And we're talking about, so far, a hypothetical fight. And, you know, Minister Gilbo said that this week and Danielle Smith kind of agreed with him that it was a symbolic thing. But I think what we're looking at here is a little bit of brinksmanship, a little bit of negotiations. It is a way for Danielle Smith to show that she is fighting the feds. And I think that it is worth keeping in mind here that... You know, this um, the move towards net zero in 2035 is actually really hard, practically very hard for Alberta. Uh, There is actually a serious policy question here for them. And I I think what might be a little bit galling to Albertans is, you know, Minister Gilbo is from Quebec, where just out of pure accident of geography, 95 percent of the electricity is hydro. Um, Hmm. That makes it a lot easier to get to net zero by 2035. And uh, it is a much bigger burden for Albertans. So there is actually a tough policy policy question at the heart of this. And and it's not just Alberta that faces that transition, right? A difficult transition for Saskatchewan, for provinces that are largely dependent on natural gas, if not largely, to a great extent, on natural gas to fire their power plants and to get electricity generation. So it's a big policy question, not just for the provinces, but the feds in proposing these regulations have to grapple with that reality. And so far, it seems to listen to those two provinces and even Ontario and others are also saying, look, there's a lot of challenges here ahead. And uh, I guess what the feds are trying to do is lay out a path for how they're going to get there in the next 12 years. But for Danielle Smith, in her case, it is very much about framing a debate and also using Ottawa as a foil for her own political advantage. That's pretty clear as well. Stuart, Randy Boisneau raised the idea that this was about internal politics in Alberta, too, in terms of what's happening in her party and trying to appease people within her own party. Do you think that that's part of this story or is this really just about the bigger fight with Ottawa? I would say that, um, you know, there's always a certain amount of internal politics in these questions, and Alberta is certainly no different given the strife we've seen on the the conservative side there. But, you know, one of the big complaints about Jason Kenney was that he didn't fight Ottawa enough. And, you know, for people in Ottawa, they think that seems a little weird to me. Um, (laughs) But that was a complaint. And I, I think probably what we're looking at here is, you know, the Sovereignty Act has had sort of a mixed reception in Alberta. Um, the idea of pushing back against Ottawa does not get a mixed reception. It's wildly popular there. So, um, I, you know, there's a cynical way to look at this, which is that Danielle Smith is looking for political gain here. Or you could say she's looking out for her own province, which in the end will probably come with some political gain. So, Tonda, help us understand. We hear all this discussion about is it a paper tiger? Is it, is, is it symbolic? Does actually invoking the Sovereignty Act change anything for either the federal government or Alberta? 
Well, to this extent, look, um, in practical terms, in, in, in effect, no, in so far as uh, Daniel Smith, even in invoking it this week, put a whole bunch of caveats, didn't actually order or instruct anyone to specifically disobey any rules still to come into effect, mm-hmm. <laughs> still to even to be released and written. Um, so in practical terms, it, change, it doesn't change. It doesn't force anyone to not comply with a law that Daniel Smith says will be unconstitutional someday. But what it does do, I think, is it, it, it does complicate things from this perspective. Look, Federalism only works when federalism works and when both parties, provinces and the central government in Ottawa, cooperate and collaborate and find ways through places where, like the environment, there's overlapping jurisdiction. And in this case, what I think is troubling uh, for both sides on what Daniel Smith has done is she's framing the debate as uh, we can ignore what we deem unconstitutional. Mm. She's not taking it upon herself to say, I disagree with this policy law or rule and I'm going to challenge it in court. She says, I'm going to decide it's unconstitutional and we'll act accordingly. And that's a certain degree of lawlessness. It doesn't uh, comply with democratic principles of allowing legislatures to go through the, the process of drafting a law and then people who disagree with it to challenge it. And I think ultimately that's where we're going to end up. This will end up in a court somewhere along the way. And it's, the path to get there will be fascinating, of yeah. course, because the federal government is suggesting it won't challenge it. And Danielle Smith has said, well, usually it's us. We're the ones who have to take things to court. This time it's their problem. Um, Stuart, though, I want you to pick up on this idea of what it means for federalism. Like with all this uh, response from federal officials that essentially dismisses this, is it true, though, that this is not just symbolically or perhaps symbolically, you tell me, damaging to the fabric of Canada? Yeah. I, well, so I, I know that the attitude in Alberta is very important to all of this. And um, we kind of had a perfect storm a couple of years ago with the pandemic and cratering oil prices because, of course— economic issues are a key part of this. If you don't feel like you're doing well, you're probably less inclined to be patriotic and feel good about Canada. Um, things are getting a little better in Alberta. And, you know, they've got a budget surplus, oil's doing a lot better. Um, the way a lot of Albertans see it, especially in the UCP, is that, you know, the big headwind against them now is the federal government. And, you know, if you are a, a UCP or an Albertan on that side of the fence, you may look to the future and say, well, it's looking increasingly certain that a conservative government is coming in in the next year or two, and things look a little better for you, maybe. Um, so, if that doesn't change the mood in Alberta, that's when I think we have a serious problem, is that if there's no real hope on the horizon, then I think we get into real trouble. That makes me think, Tonda, about the cycle that it feels like we see uh, from our listening post here in Ottawa. I mean, I was asking Minister Boisson about 2015, Justin Trudeau comes in and he's out there hugging all the premiers at the Museum of Nature here in Ottawa. It's the first time that they're having a first minister's meeting and goodness knows how long. And I was really struck recently when I heard some of the premiers complaining about a lack of a real first minister's meeting in person with Justin Trudeau. Like, but is this just the, the me, Canadian but, circle of life? Well, a little bit, because yeah. excuse me, they had a meeting in February, mm-hmm. right? They actually did have an in-person first minister's meeting in February with the prime minister and they signed a health uh, deal. But it was ha- fo- their, their argument is it was focused just on health. It was not one right, of our so, traditional... So yes, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. Uh, however, look, I think yeah. that it is a bit of a cycle. It runs with not just provincial elect 
electoral cycles and federal electoral cycles. It runs with economic cycles. And, you know, yes, Stuart's right. Actually, you know, oil prices were crashing around the time that the Liberals were elected federally. And so, yes, you know, there was an economic and political clash there for, for that part of the country. Um, I think that, you know, everybody kind of needs to take a breath on all of this. You know, federalism and its challenges won't all be, you know, disappear if Pierre Poiliev wins power in the next election. Because look, he's also opposed to what Daniel Smith wants to do on the CPP. There are going to be tensions within a federation. And I think that is a function of how our political system is set up. But I do, again, think many institutions and including federalism rely on the good faith and instincts of the people who populate them. And so things like this require cooperation on both sides. The feds can't impose something that they are going to absolutely get no buy-in from anyone on. It's ridiculous. Stuart, Tonda says, take a breath. I'm going to say, get a hug. Uh, what I want, <laughs> But I, I really do want to ask you about this because I think it's a moment where people at home and maybe even journalists are, are you know, watching their TV screens and they're going, what's going on? On Monday, Daniel Smith invokes the Sovereignty Act. By midweek, she's in Fort Saskatchewan and she is hugging several federal cabinet ministers. What does that tell us? Is that about like uh, some really good compartmentalizing or like what does it really tell us about what happens in politics? Well, I'll tell you about my first year in journalism when I ran a little community newspaper and Daniel Smith came through town on a week when I had no content for the paper, almost zero content. <laughs> and I said, can I just come on your bus for a whole day? Um, and she's actually a very charismatic and interesting, gregarious person. Did she hug uh, you? I don't remember if I got a hug or not. <laughs> but I think that is the funny thing about politics. Sometimes you forget that these are human beings. And totally. one of the things that Danielle Smith has working in her favor is that bozo eruptions, scandals, they seem to just drift off of her. Um, and I think that may be just the, the nature of her personality. <laughs> and I think that's only what you were seeing that day. Tonda, so we have Stephen Gilbo off at COP where, by the way, Premier Mo and Premier Smith are mm-hmm. as well. We know that we're expecting an emissions cap coming. So it sounds like there are more of these fights potentially coming in our very near future. But what I want to ask you is a bit more of a big picture question. Again, for folks at home who are wondering, I'm hearing all this political fighting. What does any of this actually mean for the fight against climate change? Like, does this have a real impact? We, we're seeing all these fisticuffs. Some people are calling it political theater. Is this in any way uh, impeding Canada's goals? I think what we're going to see is more political fights, bigger ones now, because the rubber will hit the road, if you'll pardon the cliche, on oil and gas caps and exactly what that imposes on a major revenue-generating sector in this country, an economic force in this country, not just in Alberta and Saskatchewan, on the East Coast as well, by the way. So, yes, you're going to see more political fights, but I think when I'm often struck by whenever we talk about climate change is that industry and companies are actually somewhat further ahead than governments and wanting to um, basically speed up transitions while also, though, making that transition, you know, as smooth as possible. And what they look for from governments is certainty. Investors look for certainty in rules and regulations and policies. And so to a certain extent, the lack of cooperation and collaboration among different level, levels of government works against that goal, works against actually our, all of our interests. So I don't think any any serious government anywhere in the country right now or political parties saying, ditch climate change goals, we're not into that. Uh, but the argument really is how we get there. And I think that's going to be an ongoing one. 
Okay. That is where we're going to end this discussion, though. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thanks. Thank you. Stuart Thompson, Tonda McCharles. Coming up on the House podcast, new allegations of an even bigger assassination plot connected to the Indian government targeting multiple sick activists on Canadian soil. You know, a lot of people are saying, where's the proof? Well, you know, there's certainly a lot of smoke, even if there isn't fire. I would argue it's a very smoky fire, given all of the allegations contained in the U.S. indictment and the seriousness of the Prime Minister's statement. We'll hear from Canada's former spy chief and top security advisor, Dick Fadden, about where this leaves the relationship between Canada, the U.S., and the world's biggest democracy. That's about 10 minutes away. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Let us know what you think about what you hear. Send us an email, thehouse at cbc.ca. Ben Perrin used to be at the centre of power. A decade ago, he was Prime Minister Stephen Harper's top criminal justice advisor. This was at a time when Harper was opposed to the expansion of a supervised injection site in Vancouver. But Perrin has had a change of heart. In 2020, he wrote the book Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. As part of our continuing coverage of the toxic drug crisis, he joins me from our Calgary studio. Welcome to the house. Hi. Hi. So, Ben Perrin, how did the overdose crisis become such an important issue for you? Well, I'd really not given much thought to it. Um, unlike many Canadians, you know, at the time, I, I didn't know anyone who had actually died from unregulated toxic drugs. I was driving to and from work, though, teaching criminal law in Vancouver at UBC, where I'm a professor. And I began to hear story after story of people who were dying. And it, it began to really bother me. Uh, it bothered me because I was part of a government that had created essentially our modern, you know, war on drugs approach. It was clearly failing. You know, anytime you have a policy where it's uh, resulting in, in thousands and eventually tens of thousands of people dying, you, you have to look in the mirror and ask, you know, whether you're the problem, right? And, and it turns out that those policies that I used to support are at the heart of the reason we have this current uh, unregulated drug crisis now in its um, approaching a decade almost now. And um, I want to do everything I can to, you know, share what I've learned and, and hopefully change things so we can save more lives. Now, in your book, you actually make the case that fentanyl is a product of the war on drugs. Tell me about that. Well, as you know, countries around the world got really good at waging the war on drugs. We're talking about seizing hundreds of tons of, of heroin, cocaine, and cannabis over the decades. You know, organized crime didn't just pack up their bag and go home. They discovered a synthetic opioid. So instead of having to you know, negotiate with warlords in Afghanistan, you can create it in a lab. What fentanyl is, is it's a drug that was created in 1959 by a Belgian scientist, and it was created for palliative cancer patients who are dying. It's a, it's a pain relief medicine. It's an anesthetic. Uh, chances are if you're, you've had a pet who's had an operation or if you've had a medical procedure, uh, chances are you've had fentanyl in that setting. And so organized crime realized they could create their own opioids um, with basic college-level equipment and, know, and know-how, and that's what they've, they've done. So we have this supply now of fentanyl, which is illicit. It's toxic because you don't know how much is in it. And if you use it alone, you're at way higher risk of dying. So why do you see that as a consequence of the war on drugs rather than just, you know, criminal gangs trying to make a, a more desirable product? 
Well, there's pretty clear evidence, um, something called the iron law of prohibition, which is that as enforcement gets harder, the products become more potent because they're easier to transport and smuggle. So we saw this during alcohol prohibition, right? Instead of smuggling beer, uh, people would create moonshine and, and, and smuggle that instead. It's easier to smuggle. So with heroin, instead of it being, you know, kilograms of heroin or people strapping them to their bodies or having to hide them in shipping containers or inside body cavities, fentanyl can be shipped and is shipped to Canada in packages as small as greeting cards. So that's the, that's why we say that the crackdown on the supply is a naturally uh, progression to a, a very synthetic, potent uh, supply of drugs that we have today. And the same is true not only of, of opioids, but also of cocaine and cannabis as well. Uh, not only have they become more potent, they've become less expensive. So the war on drugs has completely backfired. Something else I'll just mention is research now shows, you know, when your local police stand in front of their table of drugs they've seized and, you know, say what a good day it is, we've, you know, taken this poison off the streets or something like that. The research shows that that actually destabilizes the local drug supply and is associated with higher death rates in the in the days that follow. It's quite a remarkable thing that you're saying. I, if you grabbed yeah. anyone off the street or the vast majority of people, they would say, of course. I mean, the people we have talked to who are dealing with this overdose crisis are saying policing is part of the solution, an important part of the solution. You're saying these seizures make things worse. Yeah, that's that's based on peer-reviewed science uh, done across multiple studies. The latest research was published by a former police chief who became a criminologist. I mean, folks know this. When I interview police officers uh, for my for my research, they admit readily, they say we cannot prosecute our way out of the unregulated drug crisis, but it's the only tool they have. And they'll often point to, oh, look at the firearms we've seized. At least we got those off the streets. So, you know, someone who has a serious addiction to opioids, they don't stop using drugs because the police seized some drugs in their city. They're going to find them from someone else. They're going to find them from either a different dealer or their dealer is going to have a different supply that week because of the seizures and it's going to be much more dangerous for them. Well, let me ask you, though. I mean, we are seeing a different example in uh, British Columbia right now um, when Health Canada gave BC permission to decrease criminalize certain illegal drugs. But we know the province has already had to make some changes and say, hey, you can't be consuming your drugs near playgrounds, bus stops, parks. What is your sense of how that effort to deal with this crisis is going, the decriminalization? Yeah. So in terms of like, what do we need to do? We need to provide, you know, there's basically four things. Um, one of them is we need to treat this like a, a public health issue, not a criminal law one. So that, that includes decriminalization. Um, we need to provide safe places for people to use substances they're going to use anyway that are toxic. Uh, we need to provide a regulated, safer supply and rapid access to evidence-based treatment. So so on that first one that you've asked about, there was not some kind of epidemic of public drug use in BC. There, there wasn't. It was a political backlash, um, not based on any real evidence. And the same is true of the political backlash against supervised consumption sites and, and safer supply. Okay. It's, it's not based on evidence. It's based on public concern and, and fear-mongering, often by you know, conservative politicians and, well, and, in fact, politicians of many stripes. So listen, you talk about the politics of this and uh, conservative politicians. I think it's important we look at where the debate is in Canada right now. I've got a clip from Pierre Polyev earlier this year talking about his sense of how things are going in British Columbia. The results are in. The debate is over. It has been a disaster. Uh, an absolute abject failure. You not only need to take a walk down the streets of East Vancouver, where addicts lay face first on the pavement, where people are living permanently in tents and encampments, but you just need to look at the data. What do you think when you hear that? 
Uh, Mr. Pelliev has never looked at the data. Um, the fact is that we have an unregulated drug crisis across Canada. We have encampments in every city and town in the, in the country. And unfortunately, we've had uh, rampant public drug use in many Canadian cities, including in Vancouver, where I live, it well predates decriminalization. So he, he is saying, though, that the, the reason we're seeing that is a, a, a liberalization of policies. Well, we know that's not true. I, I can point to uh, Ontario and Alberta with conservative governments, and I can show you photos in places just like that. The fact is this is not a political issue, and BC has actually not gone uh, the route that they need to. They're a kind of half-hearted uh, one foot in the puddle. The other thing Mr. Polyev has done is he's outright lied. Um, he has also said that the reason Canadians are dying in such large, large numbers is because of uh, safer supply. That is categorically false. It's a lie. It's not true. Both the BC Coroner's Service and the Public Health Agency of Canada have, have confirmed that it is, uh, in, in fact, it's unregulated illicit drugs. 80 to 90% of all people who've died, it's been from that supply. It, and yet, so, it is not only Pierre Polyev, though, I think it's important to say Ben Perrin, who is raising concerns about at least some aspects of the Safer Supply program. I mean, we talked to Dr. Mark Mallett on this program, who said it is unsupervised safer supply, that there are instances that he is personally aware of where kids are becoming addicted to these drugs because they're just ending up out there in the ecosystem. We know that there are a group of addiction specialists who wrote to the federal addictions minister and said unsupervised safe supply. So a particular approach to safe supply is leading to some really problematic situations where people are becoming addicted. And obviously a potential consequence of that is that people are dying. Does that not concern you? Well, well, I'm, I've, I'm familiar with that. those letter writers. I've read that letter. They don't cite any uh, scientific studies. They're talking about some concerns they've seen in a clinical setting, and that does concern me. What concerns me more is that the leading cause of death in, in British Columbia and in other parts of the country from ages 10 into 59 is unregulated toxic drugs, like full stop. The BC Coroner Service this week released new data in BC, which tracks the substances in people's bodies and its unregulated drugs. They're also tracking whether this diversion concern is leading to new people getting addicted or not. And at this point, there's no indication that regulated safer supply is, is killing people. The fact is the numbers are, are not there. Like it's less than 5,000 people in BC out of 100,000 who are even able to access a regulated supply. What is flooding our streets is unregulated toxic drugs. This, this is a political sideshow. It really is. Now, are there better ways to do safer supply? Absolutely. If people are on board with the idea that we do need to substitute toxic drugs supplied by organized crime with a safer regulated product, how do we do that? That's a really important debate and we can have that debate, but we're not really having that. You've been on both sides of this debate. I right. wonder whether you see any issues where we could be making progress right now, where there's consensus across the political spectrum, or we could be saving lives immediately rather than being um, in the throes of some of these debates? There, there really isn't. Um, there is no political consensus on what will save lives. The, there are three things that we know the research shows will save lives. Widespread availability of naloxone, that's already happening. Safe places for people to use. We need to make those more widely available in the community, not less widely available, and a regulated, safer supply. If you had toxic meat killing people, you would replace the toxic meat. Here it's even worse. People are addicted to the product. So unfortunately, there's not an easy low-hanging fruit here that everyone can agree on. People need to take a look at the evidence, look at the research. And I think we do need to do a better job as a country of, of you know, turning the rhetoric down. And if people are interested in genuinely addressing this concern, this issue of, of our loved ones and neighbors dying, 
you know, we need to be willing to change our views. That's what I did. It was by talking to people and hearing their stories, reading the research. And I just, I challenge and encourage folks to do that. Thank you so much for your time and your perspective today. Thank you. Ben Perrin is the author of Overdose. We did ask conservative leader Pierre Polyev's office for a response to Ben Perrin's remarks that Polyev was lying when he linked safe supply to overdose deaths. Polyev's office said they had nothing to add beyond what the opposition leader has already said, criticizing safe supply. We also asked to speak to the conservative mental health and addictions critic as part of our coverage this week. She was unavailable. The Prime Minister said in September that we had credible uh, intelligence of a potential link between the government of India. And I think the what was filed in a U.S. court today uh, confirms that Canada is not alone at managing uh, these particular threats. Threats to the lives of Canadian citizens. The U.S. indictment that Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc was referring to this week alleges a plot connected to the Indian government to carry out multiple assassinations on Canadian and American soil. The U.S. allegations are shocking, and they come two months after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau rose in the House of Commons to accuse India's government of being involved in the killing of a sick activist in B.C. To help unpack what erupted this week, the CBC's Alex Panetta joins me from our Washington bureau. Alex, thanks for taking the time. Hi. Hey, so these were, as we said, shocking allegations. I mean, some of this stuff in these U.S. court documents is jaw-dropping. Can you walk us through them? Yeah, well, let's start by setting some context. When Justin Trudeau dropped that bombshell in September, it just like went off like kaboom. Mm. Canada's relations with the world's largest democracy went down the tubes. And then we heard just about nothing. Uh, you know, my colleague Evan Dyer and I reported on Canada supposedly having extensive intelligence. Uh, but that's about it until now. And now in this court filing in New York State, we received an unprecedented amount of detail, including a claim that there were three killings to be carried out on Canadian soil. We heard how much the plotters were being paid, or at least this this one alleged one in New York State. We heard what else they were supposedly offered, how they negotiated conditions. I mean, we didn't know any of this stuff until this week. This specific indictment is against uh, an Indian national named Nikhil Gupta, and he's accused of attempting to arrange a killing in New York this year. Uh, Gupta mentioned in his exchanges uh, with his contacts in India and elsewhere, allegedly, a big target in Canada. We don't know whether this was a a reference to Hardy Singh Nijjar, but he talks about this big target also says that there were supposedly four jobs to finish, three in Canada, and talks about a different crew handling the job in Canada. So this is all unprecedented stuff. Now, of course, part of what makes this so incredible are the alleged ties to India. What does the indictment tell us about that? Well, the indictment says an unnamed Indian government employee, uh, someone who worked in the security services and held different roles in the government, offered $100,000 for a contract hit in New York. And not just that. The indictment says that this uh, supposed middleman, uh, Mr. Gupta, was allegedly offered a sweet personal deal. Uh, He's alleged to be a drug and weapons trafficker. And he was supposedly told, you make this hit happen and we'll make charges against you disappear. 
The person doing the offering was described as this Indian government employee. And we're told that uh, he provided Gupta with details about this target, uh, where he lived, his address, his phone numbers, his daily routine, and that he apparently met with uh, Gupta in New Delhi and spoke with him by phone, by text, to discuss this this plot in uh, New York City. You know, one of the most tantalizing details in there involves high-level politics. Uh, The alleged Indian government employee supposedly told Gupta, don't do this during a high-level political meeting. Now, this is the month that Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, visited the White House in June. And apparently the killing in Canada, Nidra's killing, sped things up. Gupta was allegedly told, just make it happen as quickly as possible. But it never did happen, because what Gupta did not know was that he was dealing with an undercover DEA agent. And Gupta was arrested June 30th after a flight to the Czech Republic. Now, we've just got a moment left here, Alex, but what can you tell us about how India has responded? The Indian government says it's going to conduct a high-level inquiry into the U.S. allegations. It's still quite uh, defensive in response to the charges from Canada. It's not apparently responding to that. What we don't know is how high this inquiry will go. Will it reach into, for instance, the office of the Prime Minister of India? Not entirely clear. Thank you so much for this, Alex. Thank you. The CBC's Alex Panetta. So where does this leave Canada as the investigation into Hardeep Singh Nijar's killing continues and as the relationship with India has taken a beating? Let's ask Dick Fadden, former National Security Advisor to two Prime Ministers and former head of Canada's spy agency. Dick Fadden, welcome back to the House. Good to be here. Glad to have you. What we learned out of the U.S. this week, does it change how Canada's allegations are viewed? Well, I think it significantly substantiates what the Prime Minister said when he rose in the House, and I think it means that we need to continue investigating. On the other hand, it creates another problem for Canada and the United States and the West generally, which is what do you do with a country that claims to be a democracy based on the rule of law when there are serious allegations that it has encouraged organized assassinations in our two countries? India is very important in the context of our pushback against China, Mm -hmm. and we're going to have to find a way to relate the two so that we cannot forget the serious accusations against India. But on the other hand, we can't simply say we don't like India, we're going to ignore them in our battle with China. Very important questions. I do want to stay focused just for a minute on some of the particulars in all of this. The fact that the United States, we're now learning, has all of this intelligence, it was able to disrupt these alleged plots. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us, I think, at one level, that they were at the right place at the right time. Having undercover agents in place is a matter of both planning and, to some degree, luck. They clearly had somebody in place in New York to deal with uh, Mr. Gupta. uh, And because of that association, they learned not only about attempted assassinations in the United States, but also against the one against Mr. Najjar. And as you know, they've also shared a lot of intelligence with Canada. So... A number of people have wondered, you know, why couldn't Canada do the same thing? Mm -hmm. But if I recall correctly, there were discussions between security authorities in Canada and Mr. Najjar and his colleagues. But if you don't have actionable intelligence about time and place, it's very hard to protect people. And I don't want to say just that the U.S. authorities were lucky. Clearly, there was more than luck. But it is a matter of some luck. When you start trying to find people who have negative intent against you, you really do have to be at the right place at the right time. Sometimes you get this tangentially from communications intercepts and whatnot. Uh, Bottom line is they stopped assassinations or alleged assassinations, attempted assassinations in the United States. We weren't able to. Both are really serious matters. You talk about the relationship with India in all of this. Where do you think the fact 
that this has all become public now, these allegations. Where does it leave Canada's efforts to get cooperation from India, to get answers in all of this? Well, I thought India's reaction to the Prime Minister's accusations somewhat over the top, which leads me to believe that, A, they were treating us like the middle power they consider us to be, but also, to some degree, maybe we caught them out and they were surprised and they were really unhappy. I still don't understand why the Prime Minister personally chose to make these revelations in the House. He could have picked a minister and, and lowered the temperature yeah, a Yeah, I was going to say, tell me, tell me why that is significant. Well, you know, when you make accusations against another state that's very serious and you've already tried to communicate with them through officials, you want to make the point. But in this case, uh, Mr. Trudeau had already talked to Mr. Modi about it. It was a very hot issue. I can't think of another way of a prime minister making more of a serious point than rising in the House during ministerial statements period. He could have asked a minister to do it, and that always left him as a sort of court of appeal, depending upon the reaction of India. So I don't know why he chose to do it, but I think in the eyes of the Indians, it probably made it immeasurably worse because he was focusing the attention of the world. And if that was his intent, he he was very successful. So when we come back to this moment of now, where all of a sudden we have all of this additional context, obviously you're not behind some of these closed doors, but what do you think uh, it could mean for the attempt to get answers? Well, if the United States receives the full cooperation of India, as they said they would, and the United States keeps cooperating with Canada on this issue, presumably uh, there will be a flow of evidence and intelligence, and the criminal criminal inquiry in, in BC will be allowed to go forward, hopefully more successfully. But I think in the end, if we're going to do anything to register with India, assuming these allegations are true, and the Prime Minister and the U.S. Department of Justice don't make these sorts of allegations, you know, willy-nilly. Assuming they're true, we're going to have to find a way to register with India that this is not a good way to deal with allies. You know, a lot of people are saying, where's the proof? Well, you know, there's certainly a lot of smoke, even if there isn't fire. I would argue it's a very smoky fire, given all of the allegations contained in the U.S. indictment and the seriousness of the Prime Minister's statement. Do you believe that Canadians will ultimately see that proof? Is that likely? That's a good question. We certainly won't as long as there's a police inquiry underway. And if the inquiry results in criminal charges, it would come out to the extent that it can in the criminal trial. Today, I don't think even the Prime Minister could legitimately ask the police to to release this information. So if we do get that information, I think it's going to take a while. Let's go back to that question that you raised at the beginning, which is the relationship with India. What advice would you be giving about how to navigate that when on on the one hand, what's being alleged is such a serious violation of Canada's sovereignty, and yet they are this important global power? Well, I think, first of all, we have to be realistic. Canada tends to, particularly under this government, have a foreign policy based on values. Not a bad thing. All countries want to export their values. But I think on this, we're going to have to inject a fair bit of interest-based foreign policy, which means probably accept that the Indians are never going to admit they did this if they did. And we're going to have to continue chugging away at it and try and develop a parallel path, perhaps with different people on the trade side or the immigration side, and allow things slowly to calm down. Already, as you probably know, the Indians are allowing uh, the uh, regular visas to be acquired to go to India. So I think they're calming down a little bit. Um, So I think more than anything, when you have these really serious issues between countries, you try not to exacerbate it by saying something not particularly helpful. 
and you allow for the passage of time. But I think on both fronts, we have to take them equally seriously with our allies in both cases and chug along. It, it is, um, I mean, the allegations are so incredible and there have been so many twists and turns. And I'm sure that there are some people, even with Alex's helpful reporting, who are having trouble following all of it. If people only retain one important thing about the significance of what all of this uh, entails, what, what, what should it be? Uh, that we're living in an environment today where one or more countries around the world feel able to go around and assassinate people in other countries. You know, I, a friend of mine sent me a copy of uh, an excerpt from The Hindu. It's a paper in India, and it's entitled India's New Language of Killing. Narendra Modi has suggested he would authorize India's intelligence services to stage cross-border strikes against terrorists. It's just a small part of the, of the, the story. But what, I, what I'm reading between the lines there is, is that India seems to have passed a threshold of some point. Going after a terrorist who may have violated Indian law and is hiding in a neighboring country is one thing. Going after somebody they consider to be a terrorist and we do not in the United States or Canada is another ball game entirely. But this little quote, which is not from the Indian government, but from, an, but from a Hindu newspaper, is very concerning. Dick Fadden, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Dick Fadden is the former head of CSIS. Just time left for your feedback. Last week on the program, we spoke to an affordable housing development consultant who railed against what he called red tape. We were just trying to get 20 units of deeply affordable housing built for men who were getting off the street. You know, you're required to have indoor bike storage, 1.1 parking bike parking spaces for every person in the building. Okay. And these are guys who can't even afford food. And now we've created a bike parking standard and 20% of those bike parking spaces have to be for electric bikes. And you now also have to have a, a bike maintenance room. So inside the building, you have to have a separate room just created to maintain the bicycles, which you don't own because you can't afford them. And then we had to, because of the space requirements, we had to have a mechanical bike lift so you could hoist the bikes. Like, this is the part that, I guess, struck a nerve because it's asinine. Here's our senior producer, Jennifer Chevalier, with some of your emails, some of your reaction to that. So, Jennifer, did folks agree with Bruce? Yes and no. Um, One person, John Luton in Victoria, said, that's not red tape, it's green tape. And he says bike storage is not something we should dismiss as superfluous. Residents in low-income housing need more than just a roof over their heads. Then Margaret Bryce in Toronto wrote, ah, come on, surely the developer can understand that even low-income people might want to use their bike to get to work. David Parnas in Ottawa sounded a little sceptical. He wrote, I expect developers and contractors to identify any regulation that gets in their way as red tape. However, if you follow that tape back to its origin, you will almost always find a problem that it's meant to solve. What about the other side of the debate? Um, Well, Avi Woodward-Kellen in Vancouver said, if Olivia Chow and this development consultant Bruce Davis believe money is no longer an issue, then the solution is to get out of the way and let the market do the work. If there's money to be made building houses, you can count on greedy developers to build as many as possible. Oof. And then another listener who didn't want his name used said he agreed with Bruce Davis's assessment that building is all about attitude. He wrote, when people are willing to collaborate and work together and appreciate the context rather than focus on their silo, things can be awesome. 
Things Can Become Awesome, a wonderful note to end on. Thank you for this, Jennifer. You're welcome. All right, that's it for us this week. Our crew on the house this week was Emma Godmir, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.